0: But we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1b. 1 Thessalonians 1b. We've already looked at the first parts of the verse. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to look at tonight. The greeting... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. The last time we left Paul, he was waiting anxiously uh, to hear news of the Thessalonians. Uh, he had to leave uh, the Infant Church, along with Silas and Timothy, because of persecution, they left and they went to Berea, and there they had more persecution. And Timothy and Silas stayed on there, but Paul had to leave and go further south, and then they rejoined, and that happened in Athens, as we had in our reading. But Paul, all this time, with a pastor's heart, was worried about the newborn saints in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy from uh, Athens back to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. And Paul went on to Corinth and all this time, of course, he was busy preaching. Uh, But all the while at the back of his mind was this burden for the Brothers and sisters at Thessalonica, how were they managing? They were young believers. They didn't have, most of them, a religious background. They were facing persecution. They were facing a world that was uh, compromising. Were they ever going to make it? And then Timothy comes back from Thessalonica and he says, Paul, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, he reported of their faith and love and he said paul it's encouraging you don't have to worry about them god made them believers not you and god is keeping them and we can we, we can imagine can't we the blessed relief that would have been to paul well he said so in the reading and wasn't a perfect church, no church is perfect, it still had issues, and so what Paul does in this letter is write to them, and you can tell from the moments that he writes that he's just gushing with thanksgiving for their faith and love, so it's a very simple, direct letter, it's the first, either this or Galatians, is the first letter that Paul wrote, It was about 50 uh, AD that he wrote it. So having looked at the last letters of Christ in the Bible, the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, we are now looking at one of his first letters. So it's an infant church. Everything is fresh uh, and it's all uh, encouraging in that sense. But at the same time, Paul does address some of the concerns that he has for the flock. Uh, there were still uh, opponents from the synagogue. Uh, people had been saved from the Jewish synagogue. So the rulers of the synagogue were uh, causing problems. They were attacking Paul's character. Uh, they were especially attacking his integrity. They made capital of the fact that Paul hadn't returned to the Thessalonians they were saying he doesn't really care about you if he did he would have come back so Paul has to deal with the attacks on his character and then uh, these young believers most of them with very little background in the scripture they had to live in a pagan world a bit like our society today do you realize that that we are going back we're going backwards from our Christian heritage, which we're all so grateful for. That has disintegrated and we are facing a situation that the New Testament church faced. So even though it's going to be difficult, it's not going to be new. It's not going to be new. So what Paul has to say to the Christians in Thessalonica, we can learn from. How do I stand for Christ in a society that doesn't have any models? Paul deals with that, especially in terms of sexual morality. So that will be helpful to us. And also in the Church of Thessalonica, they were well-meaning Christians, but they were a bit mixed up in their views of the second coming. A lot of the New Testament believers, they were so looking forward to the second coming of Christ, they really believed he was going to come back in their lifetime. Now, we've got to admire them for that. But they were wrong. (laughs) They were wrong. And as a result, uh, some were being distressed because they were worried about what has happened to those that have died before Christ comes back. And some were not doing anything. They, They were saying, what's the point of going to work if Jesus is going to come back today? So Paul has to deal with that. Now, how do we divide this letter? The first half the first three chapters are all about Paul looking back at what God has done in Thessalonica he's basically writing a thank you a long thank you letter he's looking back so in chapter one he's looking back at how they were converted can you look back at your salvation and it's one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament I think and then in chapter two He's still looking back, but now he's defending, and into chapter 3 as well, he's defending his uh, character. Now, it's not easy uh, for any Christian to have to stand up for themselves, but Paul wasn't doing it uh, for personal reasons. Uh, His integrity and the integrity of Timothy and Silas had come under attack. And so, for the sake of the work, Paul has to defend Uh, his conduct and that's what he does in chapters 2 and 3 but it's not something uh, harsh it's quite eye-opening really because we see the human side of the Apostle Paul you don't see Paul's human side in some of his greatest letters but here in Thessalonica you realize that the man who really was mightily used of God to uh, start many of the churches in the New Testament he was just a real human being He was a very sensitive soul. So we'll see something of Paul's human side. Uh, This is what Stott says. We can hear his heartbeat and we can see his tears. There's something very moving about that. So that's the first half of the letter, the first three chapters looking back. And then in the next half of the letter, chapters four and five, Paul looks to the future and he's Dealing with how do you live as a Christian in a hostile world. He deals with that in chapter four. And then the rest of chapter four into chapter five, he deals with the second coming. Some of the confusion he's putting right. And then finally, the last part of chapter five, you've just got these short verses, short and sweet, dealing with how do I live in the community of the church? Theologically, the grand theme of Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. If you like patterns, do you like patterns? I know there are some mathematicians here. Here's one for you. Most chapters end with what? Uh, look at the end of chapter one. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What's that? That's the second coming. Chapter two. How does chapter two end? You... In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. The second coming. Chapter 3. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Guess how chapter 4 ends. Well, it's an easy guess. Comforts one another with these words. What words? We shall always be with the Lord. The second coming. The only chapter that doesn't end with the second coming is the last chapter. (laughs) So that's the big theological theme. So let me just read what Gresham Machen has said. He's got a a little introduction to the books of the New Testament. It's well worth reading. It's timeless. It was written uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Paul is earnest, but not severe. There were faults. But evidently, the life of the church was fundamentally sound. Paul knew to who he was writing. And he knew that the work of God in their hearts was due to what God had done. Christianity is not the work of men. The the Christians there might be ignorant of some things. Uh, Paul could not be everywhere at once to deal with those problems, but the Spirit of God was caring everywhere for his church. As we ended last Sunday evening, we're in the Father, we're in Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit that is keeping us. Now then, what's Paul's desire for this church? It shouldn't surprise us then that he desires two things, grace And peace. Grace and peace. What's your desire? For our little church here. Do you desire grace and peace? What's your desire for your fellow believer? Do you desire grace and peace? You can't desire any more. Grace and peace are the greatest things you can wish. A person. May may we wish these upon ourselves. Do we desire this not just upon our church, but upon every church? Grace and peace. Maybe churches like the church in Thessalonians that have dodgy views on some things. Do we still desire grace and peace? Peace. Maybe churches that do things slightly differently to us. Do we desire grace and peace? Now then, let's look at these two things. In the original here, the word for grace is charis. It's Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. The word for peace in the original is shalom. Shalom isn't Greek, it's Hebrew. Some of the converts in Thessalonica were converted from Judaism. The opponents to Paul and his friends were Jewish leaders. What Paul is showing in this greeting is this. Christianity is no new thing. It's peace, shalom, Hebrew, Old Testaments. Christianity is the continuation of the Old Testaments. But it's a flowering of what God did in the Old Testament Greek Charis Grace now then let's look at each of these and then we'll be done Grace Charis have you got Charis? have you got Charis? have we got Charis in this church? is Grace a member here? what is Charis? what a lovely name what a lovely name Do you know what it means? The classical definition of grace is undeserving favour. What is that? When I gave the children this morning a blackjack, that was a gift. That was a free gift. But I think it was deserving. They're so sweet, aren't they? That was a deserving favour. I used to be a schoolteacher... If I would have given a blackjack, not to the person that was well-behaved, but to the person that misbehaved, that would have been an undeserving favour. Undeserving. They don't deserve it. But that doesn't do justice to charis, to grace, because what grace means, really, is undeserving favour to your enemies. To your enemies. Now we had a very moving example of this in the mission. How many of you were here to listen to Tamar Pollard speak about her parents? Her parents were missionaries and I think it was when they were in Romania that they were attacked at night and her father was killed and her mother was seriously wounded. But you know what? The mother showed... Grace Caris to the young men who attacked them both and killed her husband. What did she do? She forgave them. She forgave them. Now that's humanly impossible. It's it is. But not only that, when they went to prison, she gave them each a gift, a gift in order that they might come and know the same grace that she and her husband had experienced. Now, notice, she did not say, you mustn't go to prison. Grace isn't cheap. It's not brushing things under the carpets. The grace of God does deal with sin. But, this is where the attitude of grace comes out. And this is where Paul desires the grace of God upon the Thessalonians. Uh, Just as Tamar Pollard's mother forgave those young men. And they still had to go to prison, yet her attitude toward them was one of forgiving and one of showing kindness. I think that. A beautiful illustration of grace. Isn't that the gospel being lived out? So Paul is desiring the same here. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is this. Grace goes out from us. Because we have first experienced it. So uh, Tamar's mother she was able to exercise grace to her enemies because she herself had experienced the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can can you think of the plan of grace? That's what the Bible is all about. The covenant of grace. How was that planned in eternity? Was there any merits brought in? Of course there wasn't. God set his love upon people like you and me that didn't deserve the least of his mercies. So in its planning, there was no talk of merit. Uh, Often when we plan things, and rightly so, we want people that are suitable for the task. (laughs) But grace doesn't operate like that. And then in terms of the execution of the plan, when Jesus Christ, God the Son, came into the world in order to procure our salvation, and by dying on the cross in particular. At what point did he die for uh, the people? Where were we when he died for us? I think Paul in Romans 5 puts his finger on it. This is grace for you. When we were still without strength, verse 6 of Romans 5, at exactly the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. A righteous man is a man that is clinically correct, Uh, you might not die for that person because they don't move you to love them. Uh, But perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Weak ungodly sinners enemies you can't get any worse it was at that point that christ remembered me and you on the cross we didn't have anything to deserve his mercy grace and then grace in the application of the plan of salvation the holy spirit in time coming to you calling you regenerating you giving you repentance and faith It's not the worthy that have been called, but the opposite of that. I mentioned a few people this morning, didn't I? We could go on, uh, look after the New Testament to the 2,000 years of the history of the church. Look at some of the people that God has chosen. N- none of them have deserved it. Uh, we, did we sing a Newton hymn? This evening, I can't remember. He was a slave trader. <laughs> the, uh, the the people we heard, some of them in the mission, none of them deserved salvation. But it was particularly uh, pointed when you had a former drug dealer give his testimony. So grace, grace. If you look at the word here, grace, charis in the Greek, but from charis comes another word, which makes sense. From charis, you've got kara. So we have got charis. Have we got charis in our church? Well, from charis, you've got kara. Have we got kara in our church? What is kara? Kara is Greek for joy. Joy. Doesn't it make sense? The joy of salvation. If our salvation is pure grace, then does it not give us a reason to rejoice the joy of our salvation no wonder uh, it was written in that hymn grace it is a charming sound harmonious to the ear. there's no dissonance in grace it's a melody the music of god's grace heaven with the echo shall resound and all the earth shall hear it's not cheap grace the grace of god in jesus christ on that cross jesus christ died for us while we were yet sinners and yet this is the wonder of wonders in the grace of god god's justice was still meted out because jesus took the punishments for your sins and mine but that enabled a holy god to forgive you and me Isn't isn't it amazing no wonder newton could write amazing grace how sweet the sound, amazing grace. Caris, cara, do we desire them? Are we friends with them? Are we getting to know them? Are they rubbing off on us? And then uh, the second word, peace, peace. We all know the word for peace in Hebrew, don't we? Shalom. If you ever go to Israel, uh, you will be greeted with shalom. Shalom. Now, what is the classical definition of peace? Well, again, the normal definition is a cessation of war. But that's just scratching the surface when we come to the word shalom. It's not just... The dropping of your arms, uh, the stopping of strife, it's much, much more than that. Do you know what the word shalom means? It's not just the negative, but the positive. So here's a definition, not just the absence of war, but wholeness, soundness, prosperity, prosperity. Not just material prosperity, but spiritual prosperity. Peace, peace. Now, I'll use this illustration from my geography. The River Taff. it starts off in the Brecon Beacons. And if you find the spring from which it begins, that's all it is, a spring, a fountain. And from that little spring, it's a mountain stream, and then it gets bigger and bigger until it comes to us in Cardiff. Grace is the fountainhead. Peace is the river. The river. Like a river. Glorious. Much more glorious than the Taff. Now, I think the Taff looks stunning in Cardiff. But like a river, glorious, is God's perfect peace. It all comes from the grace of God. So there are three aspects to peace, aren't there? There is peace with God. Being justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God, not let us have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an objective reconciliation between a holy God and a sinner. If our sin has been dealt with, And if the righteous anger of God has been meted out, if punishment has been made, then there is peace. There is peace. There is peace of conscience. Have you got peace of conscience tonight? Has your conscience been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Can you say, even though I'm a sinner, even though I'm guilty before God as I am, I look to the cross and I see there an end being made of all my sin because the spotless son of God is taking it upon himself. I've got peace with God, not as a result of what I've done, but solely because of Christ. You can't have anything else without peace with God. But then there's the peace of God, the peace of of god this is not so much objective peace it's subjective it's something you feel and i think this is what the river illustration is all about like a river glorious is god's perfect peace and as the chorus put it stayed upon jehovah hearts are fully blessed finding as he promised perfect peace and rest it's like a flood coming over you maybe you're going through a difficult time maybe you're in a dark period of your life and you got no one to turn to. And then, suddenly, out of the blue, this peace comes upon you. You weren't looking for it, but it just comes upon you. And the storm may still be raging around you. But within, it's all peace. That's the peace of God, my friend. It's one of the most awesome experiences in the Christian life. It makes you want to go through difficulties. No, no, we can't. We can't pray for difficulties to come. But when you're in the eye of the storm, there can be such a calm that it is blessed. We're going to end our service tonight, if the organ can handle it, with when peace like a river. When did peace like a river attend the way of the hymn writer? It wasn't when all things were going well. It was when sorrows like sea billows were rolling. But whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, this is shalom, not just an absence of conflict, but prosperity, it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul tonight? You may not have much else that you can say. (laughs) You may say to me, pastor, I'm not prosperous when it comes to material things. Join the club, join the club. Uh, Pastor, I'm not prospering with my health either. That seems to be going downhill. Join the club and it will go more downhill as you get older. Pastor, I'm not prospering in my work. I'm not prospering in my family even. But is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? You can prosper in your soul when all those other things are going down. You can be going up in your hearts. Because God's peace is there. There's nothing like it. Shalom. What a greeting. It's, it's better than um, okay, isn't it? <laughs> Shalom. And then, because we're at peace with God, our conscience is at rest. Because we have peace within. What's the outcome of that? We're at peace with other people. We're at peace with one another. Now, I'm not naive here this evening. I'm not expecting the Christian life to be a bed of roses. Uh, I'm not expecting us to be just carried along to heaven upon the river of God's peace. The Christian life is one of conflict, as Paul had taught the Thessalonians in the chapter that was read. The church at Thessalonians, even though they were blessed, even though grace and peace are desired in abundance upon them, they were beleaguered, they, they were... Uh, being attacked. It wasn't an easy ride for them. But, but, if we're right with God, if our hearts are right, it does mean it changes our relationship with one another, doesn't it? Surely it does. Uh, Tamar Pollard's mother is proof of that. If God in Christ has forgiven us everything, surely. We, we can forgive and forbear with one another, can't we? Can't we? Now, I, I was a school teacher, as I've said, and when I started off teaching, because I was a Christian, I thought I'd got to kind of um, forgive and <laughs> forget everything with the pupils. I soon learned you can't do that if you've got a job. <laughs> so if you're in a position, uh, e.g. a teacher, You can't use uh, the grace and peace and forgiveness of Christ as a reason not to deal with bad behavior. You've got to deal with bad behavior. But this is the thing. You can still forgive the person, can't you? We can still forgive. Forgive. And how many times must a person do things against us for us to forgive them? Well, you know the answer. Jesus said to Simon Peter, seven times? Seven's a perfect number in Scripture no said jesus seven times seven how can i do that you say it's impossible yes it is impossible but you're a miracle i'm a miracle the grace of god in jesus christ has been working in our hearts and paul desires just as for the thessalonians so for us that this grace and peace would so come upon us that it will enable us to do the impossible Imagine the power of the witness if, not just Christians, but if churches in Cardiff that have fallen out with one another. Imagine what people would say if we were to put these verses in practice. It wouldn't be revival, would it? Only God can bring revival. But aren't we responsible to desire grace and peace first towards one another? And to exercise them. Wouldn't wouldn't it be a powerful witness? If Paul is praying grace and peace, not just for the Thessalonians, if you read all of Paul's letters, you'll have the same desire. Can't we pray the same for all churches of Jesus Christ? However different they may be. Pastor, you're asking for an impossible thing there. I am. But I believe in the God of the impossible. And that makes all the difference. Well, I've got to finish there. But isn't isn't this a lovely uh, couplet? It, it's, it's, isn't the music here beautiful? Grace and peace to you, to you, to you. Put that into practice this coming week. Now, uh, if you do that, you'll probably find the Lord will allow something difficult to happen in your week. <laughs> but put it into practice. Grace and peace to you, to you. If you've never read Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones's studies in Romans, try doing it. And at the start of those studies, he puts it like this, and I'll end with these words: Are we enjoying these things? which Paul wanted the members of the church at Rome and Thessalonica to enjoy. God forbid that any one of us should attend these meetings with only an academic interest and say, I'm interested in the definition of grace and peace. It is not the definition we need. It is the experience of it. God forbid that you should ever look at the word of God objectively and say, ah, yes, I'm a student of the word. It is a good thing to be a student of the word, but only in order to be a practicer and experiencer of the word. Grace and peace be unto you. Have they come to us? Ah, Karis, Kara, and shalom, members of our church. Do we know them? Do we want to befriend them? And do we want to have them rub off on us so that we show that to one another for his namesake? Now let us um, sing before we go to the next part of our meeting. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. It's number 766 in the hymn book if you're worshipping from home and I think we're ready to go. Grace to you, let us all say that grace together as a prayer as well as a declaration. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.